The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. Yeah, well, thank you for choosing this workshop. I'm, I was, at, when I was looking at the list of workshops to go to, I was like, Lord, just give me five people. Because I, <laughs> I wanted to go to all of them, uh, especially the one, Get Over Yourself. Um, but I can't, because I gotta, I have to show up here. Um, so thank you. It, it blesses me that you came. My sense of identity derives from people attending my workshop. And so thank you for holding together my fragile identity. I put uh, my name, uh, Milton Vincent, with a question mark. So, so I'm here to try to find out who I really am. But anyway, uh, if you look at the notes, um, You'll, you'll be able to follow along uh, as we go uh, in this uh, workshop. The title of this workshop is Abounding in Hope and Able to, to Counsel. And this is uh, just some material that's a reflection of, of my heart as a pastor uh, and being blessed as a pastor to see so many in our congregation who are living this out. And hopefully it'll help you to dream bigger for yourself and even, even for your church. Um, but I'm excited to be able to share this uh, with you. As you look on the first page of your notes, like I, as most of you probably are aware that there are numerous models of psychotherapy that are out there uh, in existence. Uh, one article I was reading back in 1993, they... Uh, referred to a psychiatrist that was trying to keep track of all the models of psychotherapy that are in existence, and he quit counting at 400 in 1993. So imagine even since then what that number uh, might, might be now. Some of these models of psychotherapy are based on assumptions, and they use techniques that are radically different than those of other models. And even... Um, their assumptions and techniques are even contradictory to, to one another. Yet, regardless of the differences, uh, most models of psychotherapy prove moderately helpful, and you can fill in that blank there, to people at least on some human, basic, common grace uh, kind of level. Back in 1993, the article that I was just referring to, Erica Good and Betsy Wagner, uh, they wrote an article for U.S. News and World Report entitled, Does Psychotherapy Work? That's the title of the article. That's the question that they're asking. And in this article, uh, they answer the question with kind of an unenthusiastic uh, qualified yes but they also observe, as you see on the notes, that scientists have failed in study after study to demonstrate the superiority of any major therapeutic school of thought over another. In other words, all approaches to psychotherapy seem to be modestly helpful to some degree. And this is actually confirmed by more recent research since 1993. This is an astounding fact that causes these authors of this article back in 1993 to ask this question that you see on your notes. If no one technique of psychotherapy can claim preeminence, what makes therapy successful? In other words, what is it that makes the huge variety of different and competing therapies produce a similar outcome of being moderately 
helpful to people? For the answer to that question, Erica Good and Betsy Wagner suggest that we look at the common factors that many approaches share. So there's a huge variety amongst all these hundreds of models, but what do they have in common if the outcomes are similar? And one of the most basic of all of those common factors that all approaches share is a human relationship. And you can put in that word human. A human relationship between the therapist and the client. Now, granted, it's a relationship that the client has to pay 100 bucks an hour for. But it is a relationship nonetheless. It's a human relationship. In fact, the authors of this article quote from Hans Strupp, a Vanderbilt University psychologist, who gives the following definition of psychotherapy. He says, psychotherapy is the systematic use of a what? Human relationship for therapeutic purposes. Going from 1993 to 2012, uh, Margaret Lynch, um, writing in 2012, interacts with more recent research and offers uh, her findings from the research that had been done by 2012. And listen to what she says. The relationship built between therapist and client is one of the keys, if not the key, to the change process. A relationship, she says, that is built on trust, acceptance, and empathy. She goes on to say, when clients are accounting for their improvement, in other words, when you know they're doing their studies and they're interviewing clients like, why did you find this, uh, the therapy that you received helpful? Uh, when clients are accounting for their improvement, they do not emphasize particular treatment modalities. Um, in other words, they're not saying, well, it's because my approach that my therapist took was the cognitive model of psychotherapy. That's why I'm doing better. No, they don't emphasize the particular treatment modalities, but primarily emphasize the relationship they formed with their therapist. How many of you have heard of Jordan Peterson? Okay, some of you. Uh, he's a psychotherapist who cares about people. He's brought... Um, very practical help to a number of people. He's not a Christian by any means, but Doug Wilson in a recent interview said that he's in danger of becoming a Christian <laughs> uh, because of his lavish use of the scriptures and the deep respect that he has for the Judeo-Christian worldview. And in Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life, he explains what he does as a psychotherapist in the following way, and you might think, man, this is a highly trained psychotherapist and this is gonna be a really complicated explanation of what he does that's gonna be way out of my league. I could never do what he does, but listen to what he says. Psychotherapy is genuine conversation. When you are involved in a genuine conversation, you're listening and talking, but mostly listening. Listening is paying attention. It's amazing what people will tell you if you listen. Sometimes if you listen to people, they will even tell you what is wrong with them. You see the human relational element in what he does in his approach to psychotherapy. He goes on to say the following, you see this in your notes, in my clinical practice, I talk and listen. 
I talk more to some people and listen more to others. Many of the people I listen to have no one else to talk to. Some of them are truly alone in the world. There are far more people like that than you think. You don't meet them because they are alone. I start with these thoughts from these different writers simply to encourage you as a Christian in the local church. If the common ingredient that makes all models of psychotherapy at least somewhat helpful is a caring human being who is willing to listen and talk and help and empathize, then fill in the blank, the church should be a dynamic place that is bristling with power to help people. Those of us who have been saved by Christ We're called to be empathetic, to weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, to be quick to listen and to be slow to speak. And when we do speak, we're called to speak the truth in love. And the truth that we are given to speak is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God, we're told in Romans 1, into salvation to everyone who believes. My question to you is, do you believe that? Do you believe that the gospel is the power of God into salvation to everyone who is continuously believing? Uh, The truth is, guys, we've got the goods. We've got the best story. We've got the truth, the gospel truth, that has within it the power of Almighty God to bring change to people's lives. In fact, in his book, Loving God, Charles Coulson Uh, quotes from a uh, frustrated secular prison psychiatrist who was talking to a Christian counselor and he was admiring. He didn't believe what the Christian counselor would say in his counseling, but he did notice that, man, when you say what you say to people, it seems to generate life change, but I don't have that in what I say to those that I am counseling. And listen to this admission that this secular prison psychiatrist made to this Christian counselor. He says, I can cure somebody's madness, but I can't do anything about his badness. Psychiatry properly administrated can turn a schizophrenic bank robber into a mentally healthy bank robber. A good teacher can turn an illiterate criminal into an educated criminal, but they are still bank robbers and criminals. And he's admitting the futility of of what it is that he has to say to people that he is counseling. But as Christians, we have a Savior who can do something about people's badness. And his name is Jesus. And he is more than moderately helpful to people. Amen? He can transform lives. He can actually transfer a person from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God and change their destiny forever, as we just heard about in the previous session. There's no model of psychotherapy that can even begin to touch that. And this is why Paul can speak with such enthusiasm to his readers in Romans chapter 15, verses 13 through 14, about their power to help each other. Up to this point of the book of Romans, Paul has gone on this long and beautiful train of thought, a gospel train of thought with his readers. And at the end of this train of thought, Paul looks at his readers and he speaks some empowering words. These are words of power. These are words of certification even 
that will be our focus for the rest of the time in this workshop. Listen to these empowering words Paul speaks to his readers. He says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. Amazing words. In fact, one writer says that these words right here that I just read give a hint of St. Paul's aim in the epistle. And I agree. I, I think we can say that everything that Paul has said up to this point of the book of Romans has been merely for the purpose of laying the groundwork for him to now speak these words of empowerment and certification to the Christians in the church of Rome as he essentially hands ministry over to them. That's what's happening in these verses. As to what Paul says at the very end of verse 14, the New International Version and the English Standard Version translate Paul as saying that his readers are able to instruct one another. Uh, the Amplified Bible uses three words to translate the Greek word that in the New American Standard is translated admonish. And they translate Paul's final statement as saying that he believes that his readers are competent to admonish and counsel and instruct one another. And let's go with that middle word, counsel. For now, in his commentary on this statement of Paul, William Hendrickson says the following, Today the word counseling is heard again and again. Ever so many books and articles have been written about it. The apostle here reveals that there was mutual counseling already in his day, and it was of a high character. By and large, the members of the Roman church were competent to admonish one another. And in these verses, Paul is seeking to encourage his readers to this very end, and he essentially certifies them and releases them to be a congregation of counselors to one another. Does that make sense? And so what I want to do just with the time that we have is um, to observe how Paul does this, uh, to observe six actions of the Apostle Paul toward the Roman Christians to encourage them to minister the counsel of Christ to one another. And the first three of these six actions happen prior to this passage that I've just read to you. And then the last three are happening inside of Romans 15, uh, verses 13 and 14. But we'll start with the first action, and you can fill in the blank. The first thing Paul does to encourage his readers to minister the counsel of Christ to one another is number one, he evangelizes them with the gospel. He evangelizes them with the gospel. Notice that Paul doesn't open the book of Romans by saying these words of empowerment in chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. He speaks those words of empowerment and certification to his readers only after he has thoroughly evangelized them with the gospel over the length of many chapters. In fact, if you look at Romans 1.15, Paul literally says, this is the Greek of this verse, he says, I am eager to evangelize you who are at Rome. But Paul couldn't go to Rome at this time, so what does he do? He writes the book of Romans, and what is the book of Romans 
but the fullest, most detailed portrayal of gospel truth that we find anywhere in any single book of the New Testament. And guess what? It was written to Christians. So he's like saying to Christians, I'm eager to evangelize you Christians in the church at Rome, but I can't come. So you know what? I'm going to evangelize you in this letter. And he begins to preach the gospel to them and lay it out for them. And I hope it doesn't surprise you that Paul would feel the need to evangelize Christians. We tend to think of evangelizing the lost. We don't typically think of evangelizing Christians uh, but we need to think that way. In fact, real quick, somewhere on your notes, draw a circle. Doesn't have to be a perfect circle, just draw a circle. And let's say that circle represents the gospel, everything there is to know about the gospel, every gospel truth, every gospel promise, every gospel consolation and comfort. Uh, is represented by that circle. And inside that circle is also every imaginable ramification and application of gospel truth. All right, that's the circle. Now carve out of that circle how much of it you understood on the day of your conversion. <laughs> Go ahead. You, you'll be using a lot of ink to carve out how much you knew. So how much did you know on the day of your conversion? And then my next question is, however long you've known the Lord now, how much of that total circle do you know even now? How many of you carved out more than 5% that you knew on the day of your conversion? I know I couldn't have carved out that much. That's why we dare not stop evangelizing people when they're converted to Christ. That's now the beginning of our evangelism and that's why we see in Ephesians, Colossians, and Romans, Paul is just always evangelizing and laying out the glories of the gospel to Christians and then teaching them how to apply that to their lives. Not a one of us fully understands and always believes all that there is to know and believe about the gospel. We need to be evangelized continuously as much as the Roman Christians did partly to grow in our understanding of the gospel and in our application of the gospel, learning how to put the gospel onto every area of our life. Part of the reason also is because Paul tells us in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God. Not a power, not a demonstration of the power of God, but the power of God. The gospel is the ultimate location where God's power resides and does its greatest work. So if we're wanting to experience God's power in our life as Christians and in our ministry to others, then we're going to want to always stay centered on the gospel, preaching it to ourselves, evangelizing our fellow believers, and being evangelized by them. And I found that if, if I'm preaching the gospel to myself and other people are preaching it to me, and I'm just soaking in gospel truth and helping others to do the same, we all just become gospel mode versions of ourselves, which is so much better than the non-gospel mode version of ourselves. And we have to put on our running shoes to keep up with what God is doing when we are experiencing his power by staying focused on the gospel. Well, Paul's aim in this letter is literally to train a congregation of counselors whom he's going to give a certificate to in chapter 15. And the first thing he does 
to train them to counsel one another is to evangelize them and open up the glories of the gospel to them. Just very quickly, that's what Romans 1 through 11 is all about. In Romans 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul lays out the sin problem of mankind and shows how all have sinned and become alienated from God. Then beginning in Romans 3.21, he begins to talk about justification and how God declares sinners to be righteous in his eyes through faith in Christ. He talks about why this justification of sinners is necessary, how it happens, and he lays out the practical benefits of this justification in Romans 5. He literally spends 57 verses doing nothing but talking about the doctrine of justification to Christian people. In the latter part of chapter 3, all the way through the length of chapter uh, 5. This is why Paul ends Romans chapter 5, verse 2, by saying, We exult in hope of the glory of God. Understanding our justification generates hope, and we can exult and rejoice in this hope of the glory of God. He goes on in verse 4, to say that tribulation does not diminish our hope, but it actually produces or brings about a deeper hope. And in verse 5, he tells us that this hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Spirit who was given to us. So the gospel generates hope within us. He goes on to talk about our sanctification in Romans 6 through Eight, telling us that we're freed from sin, Romans 6, 7, freed from sin, Romans 6, 18, freed from sin, Romans 6, 22. We don't have to commit the sins that we used to commit because sin's chains have been broken by Christ. What the law could not accomplish, God has accomplished through Christ. There's no longer any condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We've been made sons and daughters of God. The Spirit of God indwells us and has destined us for glory forever. And this gives us great reason for hope for ourselves and for others who believe in Jesus. This is why in Romans 8, 20 through 25, we literally see an explosion of hope. We see the word hope in verse 20, and then we see hope, 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 hopes in verse 24, and we see hope again in verse 25. Uh, Paul is exploding with hope as he is unfolding the gospel to his readers. And then in Romans 9 through 11, Paul is explaining how God can give salvation like this to Gentiles like us, yet at the same time remain true to his great promises to the nation of Israel, whom he will save in the end. My point is that in chapter 1 through 11, Paul himself is acting like a gospel counselor And he's talking gospel sense into the minds of his readers, reminding them of the things that are true about them in Christ. And then telling them, like in Romans 6, verse 11, to consider or to reckon, to think these things to be true. He's pouring gospel goodness into his readers, believing that it should change them and give them hope and transform the way they live their lives and minister to each other. This leads us to the second action of Paul as he seeks to encourage his readers to minister the counsel of Christ to one another. You can fill in the blank 
Number two, he calls upon them to live out the gospel in community with one another. He calls upon them to live out the gospel in community with one another. We were reminded at the beginning of this workshop of how important relationship is to counseling. So we're not surprised that Paul would spend a lot of time teaching us how to relate to one another, how to do relationships, how to do community with one another in a way that is shaped by the gospel and gives the gospel opportunity to work in our relationships. This is exactly what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 12. He literally takes all of the gospel truths that he's taught in Romans 1 through 11, and he he puts it all together and crams it into the word therefore and into the expression mercies of God in Romans 12, 1, and then says, therefore, I urge you, plural, brethren, plural, by the mercies of God, in other words, by the gospel I've just laid out for you, to present your bodies, plural, as a living and holy sacrifice, singular, acceptable to God. In other words, Paul is saying to his readers, present your whole selves all the way down to the physical part of who you are, as a single community sacrifice to God. If Paul were speaking to us in this room, he would say, I'm not, I'm not asking for 50 individual separate sacrifices being offered to God. I'm calling you to link up your lives to one another and step forward together as a single community sacrifice to God in relationship with each other. The grammar that... He uses here, going from the plural to the singular, indicates this. Paul then calls upon them to be transformed by the renewing of their mind in Romans 12, 2. And you might say, yeah, renew my mind, that's a great concept, but how do I do that? Well, immediately, in the Greek text of verse 3, we see the word think, 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 and thinking as Paul teaches, begins teaching his readers how to think about themselves in connection with God and with each other. He's already telling them how to renew their mind and the way that they think about themselves in relation to God and each other. And he tells them to think consistently with the fact that God has measured out his grace and apportioned to each person only a measure of faith leaving each person with spiritual gifts and intentionally leaving each person in the community of the church with deficits. You realize that? God has given to each of you a spiritual gift. He's also intentionally left each of you with deficits. So it's good for us to think about what are my spiritual gifts, but also what are my deficits? And the deficits that God has left you with are intentional. And whatever your deficits are, He has supplied some brother or sister grace that is a perfect match for that deficit so that we would come together in community and minister to one another and experience the full package of God's grace and his provision in the gospel in community with each other. So throughout the rest of the chapter, Paul calls upon his readers to love one another, to serve one another, to weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. And in the middle of it all, he calls upon them to be rejoicing in hope 
hope for themselves, hope for their brothers and sisters, hope for the lost that they give the gospel to, hope for time and hope for eternity, that we're actually rejoicing in this hope. But Paul is also a realist, and he knows that if people are going to try to do community with one another, there's going to be threats that arise that jeopardize that community. Some of those threats come from without, some come from within. And at the end of Romans 12, Paul gives very practical counsel to his readers regarding how to respond when you're wronged by people in the church and by people outside the church. In the case of the Roman Christians, they were predominantly a Gentile congregation, but there were Jewish Christians among them, and this created challenges to the unity that they were supposed to enjoy. The Jews tended to recognize and honor religious festivals and holy days that had always meant a lot to them, and the Gentiles did no such thing. The Jews tended to abide by certain dietary laws, and the Gentiles probably thought all of that was a bunch of legalistic nonsense. And this was causing people on both sides of these issues in the Roman church to become frustrated with one another and to judge one another and to view each other with contempt. And these divisions were threatening to unravel the relationships or the community that God had saved them to experience with one another. So basically, Paul spends chapters 14 and 15 reasoning from the gospel and teaching the Roman Christians how to handle these issues and stay unified. And this leads us to the third action of Paul that we'll look at very quickly. As he is moving towards his goal of encouraging them to minister the counsel of Christ to one another, Number three, he calls upon them to love one another despite their differences. He calls upon them to love one another despite their differences. In Romans 13, 8, he says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Then in chapter 14, he tells them how to do that toward those who differ from them in significant ways. In Romans 14, 1, he tells the strong to accept the one who is weak in faith. To those who disagree with one another on disputable matters, He asks questions like, why do you judge your brother or why do you regard your brother with contempt? Romans 14.10 and Romans 14.14, he says, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. And then look at what he says in Romans 14.15. Paul warns his readers saying, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love, Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. You might want to underline those words, for whom Christ died. Notice the gospel truth that Paul is putting on the situation right here. Christ died for your weaker brother. Christ was willing to give up his life for your weaker brother so that he would be made whole. You should be able to put the same premium on that weaker brother that Christ put on him and be willing to give up your rights. If Christ gave up his life for your weaker brother, certainly you can give up your rights to keep from destroying that weaker brother for whom Christ gave up his life. In Romans 14, 19, Paul says, pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. And then in Romans 15, 7, 
Ultimately, Paul says, accept one another just as Christ accepted us to the glory of God. Again, notice the gospel truth there. Christ accepted us to the glory of God. He accepted us, not because we were acceptable, and it wasn't easy for him to accept us. He went to tremendous lengths, dying on a cross, shedding his blood to accept us, and so we should be like him and accept one another and thereby mirror the heart of Christ and the gospel of Christ. Now, the amazing thing is that Paul is not a trained psychotherapist. (laughs) Yet here he is talking gospel sense into the minds of his readers. He unfolds the gospel for them, tells them how to live accordingly. He calls them into community with one another And then he gets into the thick of issues that were causing conflict among them, and he reasons from gospel truth and gives them solid counsel on how to resolve these conflicts and have healthy relationships with each other in a way that's shaped by the gospel. Do you see that? And Paul doesn't just speak to them merely as an apostle, though he could have. Seven times in this book, he calls them brethren, Throughout Romans, just as he does in Romans 12.1, saying, I urge you, brethren, Paul speaks this way not simply because he truly did see himself as their brother, but also because he's trying to set an example for them of how he wants them to be talking to each other when they're done reading this letter. He's modeling for them what he's about to unleash them to do in their relationships with each other which is precisely why Paul says what he says in Romans 15, 13, and 14, which brings us to the fourth action of Paul as he encourages his readers to minister the counsel of Christ to one another. Number four, fill in the blank, he expresses his prayer that God would cause them to abound in hope. He expresses his prayer that God would cause them to abound in hope. At the beginning of verse 13, Paul says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. So not just joy, but all joy, meaning all kinds of joy, all possible joy that we can derive from the gospel that he's presented to us. Peace speaks of the experience of wholeness, a sense of well-being, an experience of inward flourishing that comes from being at peace with God We were once enemies at war with God, but now we have peace with God, according to Romans 5.2. And when we're at peace with God, we have joy and peace from God that now fills our hearts. Think for a minute just about these two commodities of joy and peace. Imagine God literally filling you with all joy and inward wholeness and flourishing. So imagine joy and peace filling you up like this, what sins would you possibly want to commit when your heart is full of joy and peace? What temptations would have any possible appeal to you? Normally what Satan does is he exploits the empty spaces inside of us. And when our soul is sitting empty and aching for something to fill it, that's when temptations have extra potency But if our hearts are already filled with joy and peace from God, then 
the temptation loses its power because of the fullness that we already have. So Paul is saying, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. And so the question is, how does this filling happen? Look at what Paul says in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. This joy and peace comes to us and fills us as we believe in Christ and to the degree that we believe the truth of the gospel. In fact, I think we can rightly say that all of us pretty much experience fullness of joy and peace from God precisely to the degree that we're actually believing the gospel. And notice how Paul doesn't just want God to fill his readers with joy and peace as an end in itself, but as a means to a greater end. Skip down to letter D, just for the sake of time. Observe what Paul says in verse 13 again. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that this outcome would would be brought about, so that you will be abounding in hope, overflowing in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So evidently this is why God fills us with joy and peace so that hope would come overflowing out of us through the powerful operations of the Spirit in us, giving shape to our words and actions, hope for ourselves and hope for those that we may minister to. And is not hope essential to counseling and to ministry? Uh, Other ingredients are essential to a ministry of counseling, but the absence of hope, in the absence of hope, no other ingredient has any effect at all. I mean, imagine a counselor saying to you, you know what, I I honestly have absolutely zero hope for you. (laughs) You are the most hopeless case that I have ever come across. Nonetheless, here's some counsel I would like to give you. Five, Five principles that might help you. How would you even begin to process that counsel from a counselor who's giving you that counsel in the complete absence of hope? Hope is absolutely essential to effective ministry and effective counseling. And Paul is wanting us to be overflowing with this commodity of hope. And keep in mind, he's setting us up to minister to one another. I honestly can't read this expression about overflowing in hope uh, without thinking of my wife, Donna, of 32 years. She's sitting over there. Um, Hope has been her theme uh, over the past year. Uh, She's written out a growing list of Bible verses that have to do with hope on three by five cards, and she's put them on a ring that holds them together, and she carries those cards uh, around. I woke up one morning, and the first words I heard her saying to me was, I got some hope for you. And she read a couple of those verses a few days Prior to that morning, I was about to go off to work, and she stopped me, and she said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, I I need to give you some hope before you leave to go to work. And she read one of those verses to me before I walked out the door. She sees hope everywhere. She's dazzled by the hope that we have in Christ. Her eyes light up whenever she even sees the word hope in a song we're singing on a Sunday morning. That's like her word 
um, nowadays. And I've literally watched God over the years fill her with his joy and with his peace. And the result is that she overflows with hope. And this hope overflows to me, the man who lives with her. And don't, don't think for a minute I deserve any of that <laughs> from my wife. I've hurt my wife over the years. I've given her many reasons to lose hope for me um, and our marriage. She knows what it's like to feel the depths of despair because of me. But she believes in a Savior that is bigger than my failures and bigger than her failures. And he is the source of her hope. He fills her as she believes in the truth of the gospel. And she now overflows with hope. And I get to experience the splash effect of that hope every day. And this is what Paul wants the Roman Christians to experience from one another. Just everyone abounding in hope for uh, for themselves and for each other with a hope that is fueled and energized by the gospel and that that commodity is being experienced in the church. He wants the Roman church to be filled with people who are themselves filled with God's joy, filled with God's peace, who are overflowing in hope. Hope is definitely in short supply in other places, but Paul wants hope, letter F, to be in rich supply in the church as it overflows from one person to another and then beyond. The most broken and messed up people can come into the church and know that there is hope for them. The sexual refugees that were spoken about uh, in the general session, when they come into the church, they need to come into a place that is just abounding in hope for them and what the power of Christ and the gospel can do in their lives. As Christians, we have great reason to overflow with hope because of who our God is, what he's done for us in Christ, and because of the power of the gospel message by which we are being saved. Not coincidentally, in verse 14, we actually now get to see Paul himself abounding in hope towards his readers as he expresses great confidence regarding them. And this brings us to the fifth action of Paul as he seeks to encourage them to minister the counsel of Christ to one another. Number five, he expresses confidence that they are full of goodness and knowledge. He expresses confidence that they are full of goodness and knowledge. Verse 14, he says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. Keep in mind that this statement from Paul is very important coming from him at this particular point in time because he has just been ministering correction to the Roman Christians regarding conflict issues that they had been caught up in. Paul knows he has spoken frankly with them at some points of his letter, which is why in the very next verse he acknowledges that he has written very boldly to them on some points. Verse 15, they needed the blunt talk. They needed the honest criticism that Paul has delivered to them at certain points. And yet, when Paul looked at them and, and even saw their flaws and spoke to those flaws, he was able to do that without losing sight of the goodness of God in them. 
He sees their flaws, yet here he says to them, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. Clearly the weaknesses and the blemishes that he has seen in them did not diminish his high regard for them. And he wants them to know this. And I'm sure that meant a lot. They needed to actually hear this affirmation from him after the correction that he had just ministered to them. And I'm left asking myself what I'll ask you, and that is, are you able to do what Paul does here? Are you able to see the flaws in a brother or sister in Christ and even speak critically to them, yet at the same time still see that they are full of goodness and actually tell them so? Paul was able to do this, and he does it here in this verse. The word translated goodness speaks of that which is helpful, beneficial, of practical good. Paul is saying to his readers, I'm convinced that you are full of substantive goodness that is of immense practical value in the lives of others. Observe what else he says in verse 14. He says, concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge. That's an amazing thing for Paul to say to them. I agree with James Edwards, who says that the knowledge being spoken of here refers to knowledge of the gospel, which leaves us with a question. And that is, how can Paul be so convinced that his readers are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge? How can he say this to them? And the answer is simple, and you please don't miss this. Paul says this to them because he has just filled their heads and hearts with gospel knowledge and gospel goodness throughout the length of this letter. So don't think Paul's statement here automatically applies to every believer. Don't think you can skip Romans 1 through 15 and claim that the statement is true for you. What Paul says here to the Roman Christians, he can say only because he has just been used of God to fill them with gospel goodness and gospel knowledge throughout the length of this letter. So let's say it this way. What Paul says here is true for every believer in Christ who has read and internalized the contents, fill in the blanks, of the book of Romans. And this goodness and knowledge makes them powerful agents now of ministry to others. In fact, this leads us to the final action of Paul as he seeks to encourage the Roman Christians to minister the counsel of Christ to one another. Number six, he expresses confidence regarding their ability to counsel one another. He says, concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. The Greek word that is translated admonish is actually a good word, uh, even though our English word admonish sounds kind of negative, like none of us want to be admonished. Um, If I saw you doing something wrong and I came up to you and said, shame on you, you evildoer, you, you might say, man, Milton just admonished me. Uh, But the Greek word that is translated admonish is actually a more positive and a richer word than that. As you see on the notes, the Greek word translated 
admonish uh, has the word mind in it. So it has the Greek word for mind and the Greek word for put in it. So literally, it means to put something in someone's mind or to put sense into someone's mind. So Paul here is telling his readers that he is convinced that they have power to talk sense into each other's minds, making each other mindful of things that they should be mindful of. Having said that, as positive as this word is, when you look at various contexts in which this word is used in the New Testament, it almost always implies a problem in the life of the person being admonished. The person being admonished has some defect or some deficiency in their thinking or in their behavior, and the admonisher is seeking to address that deficiency or that defect by influencing the noose or influencing the mind or by talking sense into their minds. So admonishing someone, as you see on the notes, in this sense of the term might simply be to give a word of encouragement. Speaking gospel truth to someone, to encourage someone, to help them overcome their discouragement. Or it may involve speaking truth to address someone's ignorance. And that's the problem being rectified. It may involve reminding someone of truths they've forgotten. And that's the problem, forgetfulness. Or it may involve rebuking and calling someone back onto the right path from which they have strayed and you're trying to address their waywardness. So there's a defect or deficiency that's being addressed, but guys, it's being addressed positively. It always involves speaking truth to a person with the intention of talking gospel sense into them with the greater goal of encouraging positive change in their life. And that's what Paul has been doing throughout the book of Romans. And now he's giving his readers a certificate telling them that they can do the same. They can actually speak words to one another rooted in the gospel that can affect genuine change in the lives of their brothers and sisters in the Lord. By the way, notice Paul says admonish one another. And his use of the pronoun one another means that this is a ministry that is both given and received so we all need to be engaged in talking gospel sense into others, and we also all need people to be talking gospel sense into us. We don't just meet with people to counsel them because they are our project. No, we are their project too. We are all each other's projects, and we're speaking gospel sense into others and allowing them to do the same because we need this all the time. All in all, in this verse, Paul is unleashing his readers to minister the counsel of Christ to each other and to speak to each other the way that he has been speaking to them throughout this letter to the Romans. And in making this declaration, Paul is honoring and elevating the status of his readers at Rome and he's elevating the status of every Christian everywhere, not just the clergy who have received a seminary degree or a professional counselor that has received a counseling degree. As James Edwards says, this is in your notes, this declaration by Paul is quite literally a testimony to the priesthood of all believers and to the goodness and knowledge on which that priesthood 
depends. So if you are a Christian, I say to you, welcome to the priesthood. Welcome to the counseling team of your local church. If you're a member of a local church, you are automatically on that church's counseling staff. And your certificate is right here in these verses. I love what Ed Welch says on this score. He's a trained professional Christian counselor, but he firmly believes that all Christians in the church should be effective counselors who are ministering the counsel of Christ to each other. In the New Testament era, Welch says, listen to this, no longer do people need a special anointing to offer a prophetic word of direction and wisdom. Now we are part of the new covenant in which the Spirit has been given to all who have put their faith in Jesus. And that includes you, even though you may not feel adequate. In fact, Ed Welch goes on to say this, God is pleased to have the church mature through the ministry of weak people who seem unqualified in the world's eyes. Most likely, this is already happening in your church. People share their struggles with each other. People pray with each other. This is certainly happening with the women in the church. Sometimes it is happening with the men. We want it to happen more and with growing love and wisdom. By the way, you know, how Ed Welch defines counseling. He defines counseling as wise and helpful conversations. That is counseling, he says. And then he says, we all need this and need to give it. So my question for you guys tonight is, can you forge relationships with other people in the local church? And can you engage in wise and helpful conversations with them? If you are saved by Jesus and you understand the gospel in a growing way, I believe you can and you should. And I know that many of you do. And that's why you're here. So let me close with some real fast encouragements for you guys as we wrap this up. Um, First of all, realize that the local church is the richest place where a person can experience the blessings of both giving and receiving the counsel of Christ in practical ways. So be involved in a local church where you can be involved in the giving and receiving of biblical counsel. A lot can happen in a square room and you're meeting across a desk from someone that you're counseling, but I'm just telling you the context of the local church is where uh, change happens and gets sealed and people can really take off and, and flourish. So be involved in a local church. Secondly, related to that, get involved in the lives of others, which will provide amazing opportunities to pray together with one another, to bear one another's burdens, to share and hear insights as you process the word of God together with one another. Covenant relationships with people serve as the richest matrix for spiritual growth and transformation. And it is in such relationships that we find plenty of opportunities for the wise and helpful conversations that Ed Welch talks about. It's like if you want to be an effective counselor touching the lives of others, uh, don't just remain distant from people, but make an announcement to the church saying, if you need counseling, come to me. No, get involved in relationships um, where these wise and helpful conversations can happen. In the process, you're going to get counseled and you're going to be able to minister 
the counsel of Christ to others as well. Thirdly, be very careful and humble. Don't just walk away from this workshop and say, hey, according to Romans 15, 13, and 14, I guess I'm full of goodness. It'd be a great t-shirt, right? I'm full of goodness. I'm full of knowledge. And therefore, all I got to do is just say whatever comes to mind. Uh, And I know that I'm always going to say the right thing to anyone that I'm counseling. Actually, as someone who's been a pastor for almost 28 years, that is not the case at all. And it's not been the case with me. We can very easily give wrong counsel, even dangerously wrong counsel to people if we're not humble and we're not careful. And that leads to the next encouragement, and that is study. Study. Read and study your Bible. Be a student of the book of Romans. The book of Romans is, I would suggest, the most extensive and helpful counseling manual that you'll find anywhere in any single book that's ever been written. So study Romans, uh, but study the rest of Scripture as well. Memorize passages of Scripture so that you can have those passages in your heart and ready to share with someone who may need to hear those truths. You know, some of the best counsel that I've ever received from someone, it didn't come from Christians who were professionally trained counselors. Think about the most impactful counsel you've ever heard. How much of that came from a professionally trained counselor? I'm talking about things that have actually changed the trajectory of your life. Most of that came from just a brother or sister who has been for decades immersing themselves in Scripture and memorizing Scripture and learning how to apply it in their own life. And it just came pouring out of them in a conversation in the church lobby after a Sunday morning service. And your life was altered. And so be immersed in Scripture, memorize, meditate on Scripture, learn how to apply it to your life so that you can then know how to effectively help others to do the same. Next, fill in the blank, get training. Get as much training as you can and learn from other counselors so that you can grow in this ministry. Scarf up every resource that IBCD uh, provides. Uh, If you're a pastor, bring as many members of your congregation to the IBCD Summer Institute. I don't know why there's not a thousand people coming to this Summer Institute. Um, We have, I think, just under 40 people from our church that are here this year, and I'm already just regretting that we don't have more. Um, I always drive home from the Summer Institute wishing that we had uh, advertised it more and got even more of our people to, to come because our vision is to have a congregation of counselors and having a resource like IBCD Summer Institute and all the resources they provide is just wonderful. And so it's available and make use of it. Um, also, um, I would say that if you, if you have a friend that maybe you have been counseling that friend and this is getting above your pay grade and, and they need someone who is trained, that's totally legit. Don't just send them to that counselor. If possible, go with them to that counselor uh, so that you can be in the counseling sessions together with your friend and be their advocate. And you're also watching the counselor. I've actually done that uh, over the years where I've, um, I've reached my limit in trying to help someone. So we've, I've sent them to someone else and I've gone with them and I've watched 
as this better counselor dealt with them and and it's enriched my counseling ever since. So it's not always possible, but if it is, go with your friend to a counselor so that you can watch and learn. Also, be willing to engage in meaningful conversations. Uh, Know that effectively ministering the counsel of Christ includes more than just throwing Bible verses at people. It involves genuine conversation, being quick to hear, slow to speak, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. Uh, You may not even know the right words to say to someone who's grieving. It may be that all you know to do is, I think I should grieve with them. And by just simply weeping with them, you are being more eloquent in communicating the heart of God to that person than any words you can possibly think to speak. But counseling does involve speaking. And when you do speak, speak the truth in love, and the truth you speak should be fundamentally centered on the gospel and delivered in the context of a caring relationship. And the last blank to fill in is dream. Dream about the light that the church can actually be. Imagine us actually living this out. And the light that the church can be in our increasingly broken and dysfunctional world. Think of the commodities that should abound in the church. Ears that are quick to hear. Mouths that speak gospel truth and love. Empathetic hearts that rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Hearts that are filled with joy and peace and that overflow in hope. A loving community of caring covenantal relationships and a powerful life-changing gospel that is centered in the person of Jesus Christ. That's all those commodities are what the church can provide for our world today. It sounds exactly like what our world needs more of today. And it sounds like what you and I need more of too. So before you guys leave, I'm going to give you a benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. And concerning you, my brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced that you are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge and able to counsel one another. God bless you all. Thank you. Copyright 2019, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.